the notion of an awakening. I just want to, I want to tell you about how this month is going to develop because I don't want you to be surprised. Last Monday, I sat down today and I prayed and I studied and I worked and I studied and I prayed and I studied with my focus on February 1, 2, and 3. I was thinking about the logistics. I was thinking about the promotion, the build-up, the execution, the expectations, and all the more. I worked on the, I worked on that announcement that you saw up on the screen, trying to get it ready. I worked on the emphasis that we'll have, and hopefully I've talked to Deborah, and hopefully that last week we'll have prayer stations in and around the worship center and in the front part of the church, and from like 6.30 in the morning, 6.30 at night, Monday to Thursday, we'll have our building open so you can come by at your leisure. And, and have a time with the Lord, just walking through the prayer stations and, and praying and getting before God. As I, as, I, as I walk through all the preparations, let me just say this to you to finish. Every service that I speak between now and February 1st will be given to this spiritual awakening. The notion of the spiritual awakening, boy, where'd that come from? The need for spiritual awakening Sunday morning, the neglect of a spiritual awakening Sunday night, it's all going to be pointed toward the spiritual awakening. And I got so focused on that. I must tell you, God had to gently remind me Monday that February 1, 2, 3 is not an end in itself. It's not the magical point. But that time that we get together with the three men who will come speak and with our musicians as they lead us, that is simply a pathway to a new direction for our church, to a new focus for each one of us. Hopefully it's a new direction, a new focus for us, for our church, and even the entire community. So the next 30 days are going to be us getting ready. And i got to thinking about that. These next 30 days are going to be more like training, a training period. Why don't you think about it? We said that Monday night we're not going to do visitation because of the national championship. I want you to think about the players and the coaches in that national championship. And those guys who are playing there, they didn't just give one year to this game and arrive at the national championship. It's kind of like golfers. People go, well, that guy played four rounds of golf and made whatever he made. Not bad for four days' work. Let me tell you something. That wasn't four days' work. That was a lifelong commitment. These guys that play Monday, that's, that's, not, that's not a one-year deal. They've been doing this for a long time. You think about our space program. Those guys trained for years and years. They selected as the elite of the elite. And then they trained for years. And all of them are headed toward this experience that's going to change their life forever. That's kind of what this is. It's kind of that, that during the next 30 days, we can plan, we can prepare, and we can pray that God will visit us in such a way that will be renewed and revived because we are awakened to, listen to this, the manifest presence of God. Now, we don't talk as Baptists much about the manifest presence of God.
But you, because we, we have this theology that when we receive Jesus, we receive the Spirit. So we got one, we got it all. And it is true. The Spirit is with us all the time. But I want to just tell you something. There is a thing called the manifest presence of God. Because I've been in that room before where I could feel. Have you ever been in a place where you could literally feel the presence of God? You see, that's what I'm praying for. I, 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 my heart is to accept nothing less. Now, some, of, some folks ask this question, Preacher, why in the world are you so focused on this thing of spiritual awakening? And I'll just tell you, for me, it's a heart issue. I look around this country... And I'm just, my assessment is this country is going to the dogs. But I want to tell you this. I look around the average church. Church is disintegrating. Because it seems to me that our focus, even inside the church, is wrong. We have determined that we go to church. May I just say this to you? That's got to change. We shouldn't go to church. We're supposed to be the church. Billy Graham was asked, and and I just read this the last day or two. Billy Graham was asked, what's the number one need in America? And he didn't talk about getting our worship together. He didn't talk about getting our ministries together. He didn't talk about uh, anything else. He said, number one need... In the American church is what he said, revival. And now you're saying, Brother Jerry, but you've not used revival. Listen, revival is a good word, but I'm going to tell you two things about revival. It's both misused and misunderstood. The average believer and the average church member believes that a revival is a series of meetings. And they will say, and you'll hear it, we're going to have a revival first, uh, February 1st through 3rd. But let me tell you something. A revival is not a series of meetings. A revival does not center just on preaching and singing. And a revival is not about a week or two weeks or ten days or four days or one day. A true revival is an awakening and a restoration to the fact that God is in charge. I've been reading a lot of material and... And I have a book. Gary, I don't know if you and Van or Wayne or anybody that went this year uh, picked it up at Refresh. It's, it's entitled, Revive Us, O Lord. And what it is, it's a collection of sermons by various preachers, by various great men of God on revival. Today, I took it to lunch and I was reading a message by Dr. John Avent. Now, Dr. John Avent was for years at North American Mission Board as the vice president of evangelical... I can't even say that big old word. Evangelization. Today, he's the pastor of the great First Baptist Church of West Monroe, Arkansas. The message that I read today we talk about God's movement or God moving. And I just want to read, I want to read an excerpt from this. I wrote it. So that, so that I wouldn't misquote it. This is what he says in that message. 
He said, the time I spent at NAMB, North American Mission Board, was a valuable time for me. There was something wonderful about being able to travel the continent and see what was actually happening in the body of Christ. I'd love to be able to tell you that I would come back from those trips overwhelmed by what God was doing among our people called Southern Baptist. But I cannot tell you that. What I found was that I'm not really sure that we really believe in God. That thought hit me over and over again. I really didn't see much that looked like what we read about in the book of Acts. And then he goes on to explain some other things. He says, for instance, he said, he said, do we really believe God is who he says he is? I mean, and do we believe his word? The, the Bible says that every person is going to heaven or hell. And said, the truth is the average church is doing nothing about that fact. He said the average person acts like that it doesn't really mean anything. You see, folks, we live in a, we live in a nation which was given, blessed, and protected by the hand of God. And sometimes we think that we are above, that we are above God's words. I want you to be reminded of words that, was, that were spoken by Moses, by Moses to the children of Israel on the screen for you. This is toward the end of Deuteronomy, so you know, if you know your history, Bible history, it's getting toward the end of Moses' life. He's about to hand off the mantle of leadership to Joshua. He's not been able to get them into the uh, land of Canaan, and he lost his temple with them, so he lost his right. And as part of his closing words, he says, See, today I have set before you and he, by the way, this is the message of God through Moses to the people. And he says, see, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his way, and to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances. But here's the warning that we miss. If your heart turns away, and you do not listen, and you are led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not live long in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. You see, Moses, as he walked away, was giving those folks some warning that here's the deal. As long as you honor God, you're going to be blessed. But when you turn away from God, he'll turn away from you. Now, did you hear that? I want to say that again. When you turn away from God, he'll turn away from you. I ask this question. Do we honor God the way that he wants to be honored? I mean, with our hearts and our lives deep where nobody knows, is God pleased with us? Is God among us? 
Today I read a... Um, I'm not going to believe where I read this. Today I read an article from a, um, from a Pentecostal brother, Charisma Magazine. And he, uh, I read it because it kind of came, it came to my email, and he's been investigating movements of God since 1995. That's some 17 years now. And what he does, he and his team get together, and they go to investigate when they hear something being called a movement of God. By the way, you do know not everything that is, that is put out there that's a movement of God. It's not really a movement of God, and, and I could call some by name, make some of you mad, but it just doesn't have, it doesn't seem to have the hand of God on it, and yet people are duped by it, and that's part of the end times. But he goes around and investigates to see if it is an authentic movement of God. He has some questions and, 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 and compares it to God's Word. And over the past 17 years of 800 authentic movements of God, do you know how many of them have occurred in North America? Anybody want to guess publicly? 30 out of 800? Did I hear somebody else give a number? What would you say? Ten. Ten? Anybody else? Out of 800? Two. Two. You know, and it's, this tells me a whole bunch of stuff just two. You know, I said it Sunday. What is it that we don't feel a need for God? We can fix it and figure it out. We got the resources, the manpower, and the wherewithal. What's he going to save us from our prosperity? Well, that may be what he actually takes from us to get us back to him. But here's what I... I think Paul has it right in Romans. This is the English Standard Version, just part of Romans 13, 11, where he says, The hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. I call this the notion of, of a spiritual awakening, and there it is right there. It is time for you to wake from your sleep. I want you to think about it. If you're going to be awakened, from awakened, you know what you have to be? If you're going to be awakened, what are you going to have to be? Sleep. Asleep. Now, you remember all the nuances about being asleep? You know, the, the, the real one is if, if you're asleep, you're oblivious, you're unaware to what's going on around you. Now, you can look through the Bible, and you can find the Bible's replete. I think um, one translation has awakened in some form 55 times. One translation has it 35 times. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of awakenings. You can think of physical awakenings, and I kind of got, got a charge out of this today. It's certainly not theological, not right, but I want you to think about it. Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Eden, he said, in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, he said, would y'all pray with me for an hour? He'd come back, and what were they? Of course, I think they were getting him back because in the, in the middle of his storm, because in the middle of their storm, 
He was asleep when they were in. You understand what I'm saying? But even the Son of God had to wake up to fix what was going on around them. When you're asleep, you don't have a clue what's going on around you. It's kind of like the old frog in the kettle. Y'all do know about that. You put a frog and drop a frog in a kettle of hot water, he jumps out. You fr- drop a frog in a kettle of room temperature water, he gets comfortable. You raise that temperature, he'll sit right there and cook to death because he's unaware of what's going on around him because he is just oblivious. And that's what sleep is all. I, back in 1978, Deborah and I were living in a house that was owned by the church. We laid down one night on one end of the house, and for some reason I woke up in the middle of the night. This is before all the night lights and electronic things, and I could see something flickering down the hall. Went to the front bedroom, and the house was on fire. I want to tell you something. If we hadn't woke up, we would have been dead. I'm afraid that if we don't wake up, our country, our culture, and our church would be dead. Now, I, just, I want to be clear about this. It's easy to make some kind of swirling statement that if we don't awake out of our spiritual slumber, which Paul wrote about, then our country will be dead. It will not be here for our kids. It will not be here for our grandkids. I believe that's a prophetic statement. But listen, it is not the correct motivation for revival. Much as I love the United States of America, you know... There are people that just want to travel the world. They want to go to all places. I've been out of the country a time or two. I don't really have a burning desire to leave this country. I love this country. But you need to hear me. Restoring this country to the days past is not God's prime directive. The only country which I know that God has ever chosen is the nation of Israel. God is not looking for a country or a nation. God's not even looking for a church. God is looking for a man. God is looking for a woman. God is looking for an individual who will surrender their hearts to him. He's seeking people who will totally and completely sell out to him, all in, nothing held back. I'm reminded in God's word how he spoke to Ezekiel. And he said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me. But let me just stop right there. I sought for a man who would for a man among them that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me. Why? For the land. God is looking for people today, for men. He's looking for women. 
who will sell out to him. It always begins with one person. If there's going to be a spiritual awakening here, it's going to begin one heart at a time. It's not going to come collectively. It's not going to come corporately. It's going to come in your prayer closet and in my prayer closet because you see the truth is every spiritual awakening in history has begun in prayer. That's why I took the time to develop these prayer guides. I want to say this to you, not for a pat here, and I don't want anybody to respond after the service. This requires a lot of effort from me, from staff. Wanda has a lot of time in it. And you know what? We don't do that to have something. We've got plenty to do. In fact, the truth is we're too busy around here. We're not busy. We're, we're not um, nearly as focused on him as we are on being busy. You see, the truth is God is looking for one person at a time to make up the hedge, to stand in the gap before him for the land. You know why? Scripture goes on to say that. For the land that he should not destroy it. That he should not destroy it. You see, God is looking for some people who will stand before him and, and will make up, will stand the line like our soldiers do. May I just say this to you? When I read that, I saw for a man among them that would make up the hedge and stand the gap before me in the land that I should not destroy it. I'm going to tell you something after Sunday night. That scripture means something different to me. Ray Wood stood up there and he compared Abraham who was pleading with God for Sodom and he said, for 50, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10, would you not destroy it? And you know, the reason Sodom was destroyed was not because of all the wickedness in the land. It was because there was no righteousness in the city. There was no one sold out completely. I mean, you had Lot, but even when Lot left, his wife still had to look back because she loved that place so much. But I want to tell you what, we didn't even get to the saddest part of that verse in Ezekiel. He says, I sought for a man among them. Let me see if I can put this on the screen for you. I may not be able to. I sought for a man among them that they would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. And here's the sad part. This is the epilogue. But I found none. To think God looks and he's looking diligently. I mean, you can go back to Second Chronicles 
where it says the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the whole land to find someone who would be faithful on his behalf. To think that God looks and finds no one is a little sobering to me. You've heard me say it many times. Our country, our culture, our community, and our church are in spiritual trouble. Mankind, as we know it, has now turned his back on God. And one of the truths that the church has failed, that's us. We failed to really assimilate. Is this. You can take it to the bank. If our culture and our country has turned their back on God, they have only followed suit to what the church has done. God's call is to return to me and I will return to you. God's call is you will find me, watch this, when you seek me with all your I use the term spiritual awakening and the notion of spiritual awakening because I don't believe any authentic believer in the body of Christ known as Hueytown. I don't believe anyone here has turned their back on God on purpose. But I believe from the depths of my heart I have no trouble, no difficulty in believing that without realizing it, many of us have nodded off to sleep with our relationship to God and with our service to God. You say, Brother Jerry, you blaming us? No, blame doesn't matter. Why it's like this doesn't matter. It's what we do with it. In fact, I, I'm going to kind of end with a story here. I read today, topics football. Topics football, you got it? The subject is the game that was the biggest wipeout in football history at any level. Does anybody know what the score was? And the tide wasn't involved, okay? The score was 222 to nothing. As John Avant tells it, it was between Georgia Tech and Cumberland College. It was in October of 1916. In this game, it seems that there was a um, there was a man playing for Cumberland. His name is Bert Patty. He went on to be a very successful attorney. If you can imagine, you score 222 points. What do you spend your day do- doing? I read some other things about this. Somebody said every time they run a play, they scored. But you spend your day kicking off if you're going to score 20. They scored 60 the first quarter, 122 by the half, the rest of them the second half. One of those kickoffs, Bert and his buddy was down uh, receiving, and Bert thought he was going to get the kickoff, and, and it didn't come. And so he ran over here, and he tried to catch it, and he fumbled it, and it went over this other guy, and Bert reportedly said, Pick it up! And that boy said, you fumbled it, you pick it up. (laughs) 
You know, when it comes to having hot hearts for God, hot hearts for God, we've all fumbled the ball one way or another. I have. You have. And we can stand around and blame everybody, point fingers. But I want to suggest this to you. 2013, we're in the last days. We don't have time for the blame game, and it doesn't matter who dropped the ball. It could be previous generations. It could be the last generation. It could be the two generations back. But now it's time for us to pick up the ball and wake up. And the only way that will happen is if it begins with you and me. Let's pray.